Very good to be with you tonight, and uh, I look forward to the study that we have together. Uh, I have a word that I'd like to begin with personally. Um, I am grateful to the, the elders, to the leadership of this congregation, and, the, and its members for putting this on. Thank you for the invitation. Um, when Austin invited me to come preach on this, my first response was one of deep skepticism. Uh, I, I think I asked, why? Uh, why me? And so I have some anxiety around this because shame on me for thinking it, but I, you know, I just assumed that maybe this was uh, one of those gotcha type of things. And, and, and again, uh, I love the people here and I've gotten to know you, and yet whenever he originally gave me that uh, request, I was a bit anxious about it. I still am. So uh, just recently, I preached on gender identity in the church at another uh, preacher's study event, and I had a lot less anxiety about that than I did talking about this. If that gives you a gauge on, on uh, maybe what this is about, I think it's because I have heard of positions that are maybe a little bit different than mine, and I've just assumed that uh, naturally I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet myself, so I better just knuckle down and study even harder, and I kept coming to what I believe is a very sound biblical conclusion. So I guess I'd like to invite those who maybe uh, have a different belief or a different conclusion on women as teachers uh, to consider the message that I'm going to share tonight, and I hope that from the scriptures that together we can uh, determine what the Bible has to say on this. So here's a roadmap of the study, and uh, I'm going to begin by sharing the QR code. If you have a phone and you want to have this PowerPoint, and you'd like to have it during the study, you can pull out your phone and uh, that QR code will lead you to the PowerPoint. And uh, that way, um, if you want some good ammo to use against me, then you'll know where I'm going, right? And shame on me again for maybe assuming that, but if you want to know the scriptures, that's, that's the legitimate reason. If you want to have the scriptures for this study, then I invite you to have this and follow along. I have four big points that I'll be talking about tonight, uh, and before I get to those, I will share some study assumptions, things that I believe to be true based on the scriptures. And then I'll use uh, these four big points about mindset and value and submission and work uh, to prove these assumptions from the Bible. So uh, I think it's important to start this way because I don't want to distract anyone who either is curious about or maybe is dreading uh, the, the points that are coming next and they're wondering, where's he going with this? Well, let me just tell you uh, the basic assumptions that I'm going to uh, hold as we go through this together. I believe that women can be, should be, ought to be, and must be Bible students. So that's the first point I'd like to advocate for tonight, that we have a duty as brothers to encourage our sisters to study the Word of God. Secondly, I believe that women can and should and ought to and must teach the Bible. Now that word teach might have some baggage with it, but I don't think that... Uh, in the broad use of what it's asking, and that just simply means one person informing another person about the Word of God, I think that women must do this. Number three, I think there are different methods or venues 
in which the Bible can be taught. And so that's going to be an important difference maker from what we traditionally advocate for versus maybe some of our friends in various denominational groups. Number four, I believe that the teaching in the public assembly should be done only by men. And for those uh, who are familiar with the churches of Christ and the view that we have, this is probably nothing new. But for those who maybe are watching on YouTube who are not familiar, this might be the most radical point uh, of the night. And that is, uh, it kind of clashes against modern culture, which is very egalitarian. And yet we do find distinction in the scriptures. Number five, I believe that distinct teaching roles glorify God when lived out properly. I also believe that it brings shame upon the church and on the family when these principles are lived out improperly. And so it's very important that we have a, a uh, healthy balance about this teaching role. And we'll talk more about balance in a little bit. I believe we suffer from extremes of various philosophical influences. And that's a lot of jargon. But for example, postmodernism. I think there's a lot about postmodernism uh, that the extremes of that view are what we know about, but maybe not all of it. Uh, egalitarianism or feminism, again, some of the extremes of those views are what we know of. The views themselves and all that they stand for are a lot broader than we, we typically consider them. And so what happens a lot of times is we make straw men out of these philosophies, but there are some good things in them. And so I'm going to suggest tonight that making straw men out of these influences doesn't solve the issue. Well, we shouldn't have women teachers because that's what feminists would want, right? We don't want feminazis. Well, that's true, but there are also a lot of good things that, that some of these views have brought, even if the fruits of these philosophical views the fruits that we often see are, are dangerous or sinful or wrong. Okay, i got to hurry along. Um, preachers, teachers, elders, and leaders, whichever you find yourself in, uh, the leadership of the church can and should and ought to and must advocate for and encourage our sisters to teach within their roles. And if preachers, teachers, elders, leaders do not advocate and encourage our sisters to teach within their roles, then we're burying talents at the congregational level. And so if someone has an alternate view, and because of their view, the church decides, well, we're just going to not uh, have our women be involved in any sort of outreach or evangelism, any sort of study, anything of that capacity. We just don't want to... I'm advocating that that's a burying of talent. And number 10... Um, I, I think there's not a mold of personality into which every woman must fit. And so I hope in my presentation not to condescend someone who maybe isn't drawn to this or that. For example, uh, if you find yourself drawn, sisters, to hospitality and, and, and making food and uh, opening your home and, and having this be a place of, of, of gathering where people can come to study, but you're not interested in, in being maybe one who organizes studies in a private capacity, um, then I'm not going to try to force you to give up what you're naturally inclined to do. I want everyone to feel welcome and that you don't have to all look or act the same as far as your personality is on this. Okay, balance is essential. 
Here's a final thought before we jump into the four big main thoughts. Uh, I believe that balance is an inferred Bible principle. And I, I take that from Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. If you love Him with all your heart, but you don't love Him with all your mind, that's not a very balanced type of love. It can be skewed. And so it is with any sort of Bible practice or discipline. Uh, if we are very anxious about one part or we're very passionate about the other part, then that can get out of whack. And so tonight we'll be talking about how there are, in fact, distinct roles for men and women when it comes to teaching. But I think it can be balanced with how women are gospel participants and if we were to go extreme in one way or the other, that's where we're going to uh, maybe get in trouble. Okay, here we go. Number one, women of virtue. Let's talk about a mindset that I believe Christians should have when it comes to our sisters as teachers. Mindset is always an appropriate place to begin a topical study or a, a, any sort of difficult study because... One might have a proper action, but with an improper mindset, it still comes to an incorrect conclusion, such as 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 29 about communion, where somebody's not communing with the proper uh, mindset. So as we consider women as teachers, I think it's important to start with how we view women. Okay? And uh, no, no greater scripture can I think of than the virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31. And so we're going to spend time kind of building a foundation of mindset based on that scripture. Proverbs is bookended by women. So if you're interested in Bible trivia and it comes up, this is for you. Uh, it begins with Lady Wisdom in chapter 1 and it ends with the Virtuous Wife in chapter 31. Now the bulk of the teaching is uh, communicated from father to son. So as you read it, it's going to sound like father to son, but it starts with women on either end. And uh, Proverbs 31 is an acrostic poem, meaning each verse is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's helpful for memorization. Uh, and it's, it's designed to show that this virtuous woman is the epitome of what a woman of excellence ought to be, right? Uh, sisters, I, I would probably want to clarify that... Uh, this isn't a checklist where you have to do all of these things. And that if you don't do all of these things, then you're not a woman of excellence. That's not what this list is intended for at all. However, we find this godly woman is doing a vast amount of different things uh, that I th it would exhaust me to do even half of what she's doing. But for example, she's a landowner and she's a businesswoman and she rises early to make food for her family and for those who work for her. Her reputation is so high that at the gates they praise her husband because of the good things that she has done. It starts with the rhetorical question in verse 10, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. And it ends with what I think is the proper mindset for a godly woman. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. You know, is charm a bad thing and is, is beauty to be avoided? I don't think so, but it's just making sure we understand the order of, of value here and the, the, the most wonderful thing that a woman of excellence can have is a desire to fear and respect and obey God. Okay, 
With that in mind, I'll make this conclusion based on this mindset. This is not a study that's primarily about what women can't do. Notice the difference. If it's a study about what women can do, suddenly we're, we're, we're shifting our mindset about the study. If we only teach on women teachers centering on what they can't do, I think it closes off the righteous inquiry uh, that we can make about our sisters and how they can be helpful for the body of Christ. This is, I think, true with what the New Testament teaches. Every part has to include every one, and that includes well over half of probably every congregation in the Lord's church, which is female. And as this verse is highlighted, when each part is working properly, that is when the body grows and builds itself up in love. So based on this uh, very brief foundation that we've built, this mindset that our women are excellent, they're virtuous, they're godly, and uh, it is such a pleasure to work with them in the work instead of the mindset of, well, what's the things that they can't do? It makes a difference as we approach the very same scriptures. Now, the second point that I'll bring up is how the New Testament uh, calls them fellow heirs of grace. So this is very similar to mindset. We're talking about the value and the worth of our sisters, but now we're focusing in the New Testament proper. So here's the first of three ideas. First, fellow heirs require understanding and honor. That's right. We're commanded, brothers, within the context of marriage, uh, we're commanded to dwell with them in understanding and give honor to our wives. Now, uh, it says that they're the weaker vessel as being heirs together uh, in, of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. The best example I've ever heard is that to be a weaker vessel is like a, a glass that's made out of crystal instead of a glass that's made, or instead of a wooden bowl. So you have a wooden salad bowl that you're gonna put on the table. How does every teenager gonna do it? Like this, <laughs> on the table. Now, how are you going to move a crystal bowl with great care, with great concern? Now, there are several things in here I'd also like to bring out, but the first is this. There's commands here that we are to dwell with them in understanding and not throw up hands saying, who can understand this woman? We can't say that. Even though we may be from Mars and women from Venus, and may, even though there are no doubt distinctions in the roles Men have been called by God to dwell with their wives in an understanding way and to give them honor. And this is radical in the first century, in a time when a woman's word uh, was often not admissible in court or it didn't matter as much in court as the word of a man. This is radical teaching for us to have a mindset that our sisters are fellow heirs of grace. And finally, our prayers are jeopardized when we don't have this mindset. Brothers, we're talking, I know, about wives, but the idea here is that if you do not treat her as a fellow heir of grace, then your prayers will be hindered. Fellow heirs are greater than cultural norms. And I, this is first century cultural norms, but Galatians 3 verse 27 says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, these identifying features, our race, our ethnicity, our gender, our socioeconomic, these don't evaporate in Christ. They're still there. 
And Paul, and for example, uh, Philippians chapter 3, I believe, he talks about the different identifiers, his ethnic, cultural background. It was still a part of him, but the primary part of his identity was who he was in Christ. And so the primary identity between men and women is that we are fellow heirs, and it's greater than whatever our culture, past or present, might think about men and women. Third and finally, fellow heirs come from all walks of life. And so part of that uh, value and worth and virtue is that God uses everyone to accomplish His will. I don't think there's anywhere where that's put on display more than Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, where traditionally genealogies go from father to son, father to son, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And it's talking about father to son. We have four women who are mentioned by name. And just like the men, some of them may have a better or worse reputation than others. But if you think about the women and, and maybe the bad that they did, then I would just challenge you to look at the men in this list and consider that a lot of them are not as heroic as we often think of them. This is a group of broken sinners from whom the Messiah came from. And what it's meant to show is that Jesus is part of humanity in the sense that He is a man, he in the flesh. And women got to be a part of that. So, now as we move into our third section on differing roles, where we're, we're really talking about the, uh, the different types of submission and authority, this is traditionally where this topic starts. But what I'm hopeful for is that by building a foundation of, of mindset and worth and value, when we look at these verses, we're not looking at them simply from a place of, well, what can women do and what can't they do? But rather, we're trying to understand uh, when the church gathers together, why is it that men are the ones who are preaching in public? Whenever there's a, this public assembly, why do women submit by learning in silence? Well, let's consider uh, some of the scriptures. And we'll begin with this one. The point is, differing roles begins with submission. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. For a man ought not to cover his head, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. What I want to emphasize in this scripture is that differing roles is not synonymous with differing value. Hopefully we've established that, that we are talking about different things. And this can't be emphasized enough because of the culture that we live within, which is a postmodern, critical, uh, critically driven, egalitarian, which means equal and always, egalitarian culture. And so one who hears a scripture like this coming from the greater culture is in shock that people in the 21st century would still uh, look at these archaic, discriminatory, sexist ways and advocate for them. And what we're suggesting is these are not discriminatory or sexist, but rather we value, we have great worth, we esteem each one highly, and God has ordained an order of authority by which 
we submit in that order of authority. Role distinction does not diminish the value because if it did, then it would diminish the value of Christ. From verse 3. Now we know that God the Son and God the Father, there is a submission in their relationship. But what is it a submission of? One's of equal value. Is Jesus worth less than God the Father? Of course we would not say that. We would say that in this divine nature, even if there's a lot that I might not understand about it, uh, one is volunteering to take a role in this ordained order that is beneath the other. And so it is with men and women. And how sweet and blessed it is when we choose to obey God by submitting to His ordained order of authority voluntarily instead of being forced to or coerced to or uh, being silenced and not giving the chance to process it properly. Number two, differing roles are on display in public worship. Whenever we have set aside time for the church to come together, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34 says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The fruits of this submission discipline are on display when the church gathers for worship. And it's through the Holy Spirit that Paul explains that these distinct roles take on their distinction at the fullest extent when the church gathers together. And this specific scripture might not give the why. Well, why? Why do women have to do this? And why do men get to do that? We'll talk about that a little bit more in the next scripture. This one certainly gives us the how. And that is, when the church gathers, the one who is standing and leading is, the, is going to be male and not female. Now, it's important to remember that uh, a lot of men are silent in the assembly as well. In fact, all of them are silent except for one. And a lot of times we forget that. And we think that only the women are silent. But when the church comes together, for example, in communion, a man is teaching and everyone else is participating by considering these emblems as it passes around and partaking of them. When it comes to singing, there is one who is called to the front and leads the singing, and everyone else is participating by responding in song. When it's time for the sermon, one is teaching a man, and everyone is participating in silence by being like the Bereans, opening the scriptures, making sure that the things that are being taught are accurate. So we all have a role in worship, but the point is this. In God's ordained order of authority, He is the author of confusion, not of peace, according to verse 33. And so that way that, that peace is done within the Lord's church is by having one man at a time lead worship. Number three, how much time do I have left? Do you call time here? Okay. Find out. <laughs> The differing roles, the, the why, I believe, have twin roots behind it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, I better start reading fast. Uh, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, quarreling. Likewise, that women should ordain themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided 
hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. For the sake of time, I can't go over every part of this verse. It really deserves its own study. There are some things here that I think would be helpful for us to uh, chew on for a little bit. Is the context of this scripture when the church assembles, or is it meant to be universal and we apply these principles at all time? My understanding is... uh, For those that believe this is universal, that there are some concerns if we only apply it to the church. Uh, First, well, men are lifting up and praying. uh, They're lifting up holy hands and praying in every place. That's not just the church, right? According to those who take it to the universal sense. Or uh, if it's only in the church, then women could only be modest here, and then you don't have to be modest out there in the world. Uh, And so it's better if we apply it universally. However, I tend to lean the other direction that this is intended more for the worship service than it is for a universal application. And there are plenty of other scriptures that corroborate that outside of the assembly that we should be a people of prayer and that women should be modest, right? But there's, there's a connection to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that uh, I find in this passage uh, specifically that I think gives it a better contextual understanding. And maybe we could talk more in the Q&A about that uh, if, it's, if it's needed to be. However, uh, there are two very distinct whys, I believe, in this section about why women learn in silence whenever the church gathers together. First, as it says here, let me get this. Uh, oh, is it on? No. I don't have enough time to fiddle with it. There we go. Uh, Adam was formed first, and we've read that previously in 1 Corinthians 11, but there's a creation order, and uh, this does not diminish value. We've established that already. There's simply a creation order, and this is one of the reasons why uh, men lead and women submit whenever the church gathers together. The second is that there seems to be an element uh, about the deception and how since she was the one deceived and became the transgressor, And I think what you can find is in Genesis chapter 2, even though there is a creation order, initially the woman is described as some translations call the suitable helper, the helpmeet, or the perfect counterpart, depending on what translation you use. But in Genesis 3, verse 16, the Lord declares that her desire in the ESV will be contrary to her husband, and yet he will rule over her. And so while this may be difficult to accept and even more difficult to execute, maybe some people are questioning its fairness, that uh, this just doesn't seem very fair. What I would ask for you to consider is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Let, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so there can be times when uh, maybe we have difficulty accepting the Father's will, but we can still execute it and work on our hearts as we move towards submission. Okay, differing roles was universally taught, and here are two scriptures that talk about Paul, who uh, preached everything, everywhere, in every church. And finally, there are uh, differing roles that give God glory. And I think this is really important. 
Maybe we don't talk about this a lot, but role distinction in what we do when the church gathers together, role distinction between husbands and wives. Friends, um, one of the things that we talk about with young couples when we do pre-marriage counseling with them is a wife who is willing to submit to her husband and a husband who's willing to love his wife the way Jesus loves the church models biblical Christianity to a lost and dying world like nothing else. And so uh, I think, and these scriptures are what I use to make this thought, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 10, Matthew 5, verse 16, we glorify God in the roles that God gives us. And so uh, when the church gathers together, and, and maybe we're frustrated or maybe we're uh, angry and maybe somebody's not as talented in the role and we could have done a better job, what, whatever the thing may be, we're giving God glory when we honor the distinction that the Bible talks about in this regard. Now, even though the woman, according to this distinct role, does not have the privilege to teach when the church comes together, uh, I think there are too many New Testament examples and commands of women as participants in the gospel to say that women can never teach. Now, I brought it with me as a prop, and then I left it on the dresser back at the house. So just imagine I'm holding it here, and it's that little track that Jerry Cutter made all those years ago about the public teaching or teaching in the assembly. And uh, that phrase, when a, a woman can teach, she can teach a man, a woman, or a child. And when a woman cannot teach, she cannot teach a man, or woman, or child. That's the stuff I grew up on. And I, I've heard that people have, have kind of uh, maybe moved away from that a little bit. I'd love to understand why, because I think it really does a good job of explaining that there are times when a woman can't teach anyone when the church gathers together in this public way. But there are times when a woman can teach ought to teach, should teach, must teach. And I want to show you some examples. Mary Magdalene was the first gospel evangelist. Now, I put quotes around that because people might be really uncomfortable with that title. But frankly, if an evangelist is somebody who is sharing the good news of Jesus, then she's the one who is tasked with the first opportunity to go and tell others that Jesus is risen. This is... Again, uh, I don't want to speak too hyperbolically, but it's radical. It's revolutionary. The fact that in this culture, when a woman's word in a court of law is going to count less than a man's word, the fact that the first eyewitness is a woman, it can't just be coincidence. There are other women who are the second gospel evangelists. And Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24 talk about these women who were with Mary, and uh, we could talk about how they get separated and then come back together. But they also go and tell the apostles that Jesus is risen. Priscilla, Aquila's wife, was the teacher of a preacher. And I know this scripture says that in verse 26, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. I get it. They're working together. But the idea here is it is appropriate for a woman to teach a preacher when he needs correction. And there's times after a sermon where the best advice I have gotten is from an older sister, a godly woman who basically tells me, hmm, you might want to check on that. Did she usurp authority over me? 
No. No. She's doing what Aquila and Priscilla did and taking someone aside and teaching them the way of God more accurately. Philip's four prophesying daughters had the gift of prophecy in Acts chapter 21, verse 8 and 9. And I don't think we should use this verse to usurp the scriptures that talk about the distinct roles of public teaching. We don't say things like, you see Acts 21, and that's why women ought to be able to preach. We don't do that. But likewise, what we shouldn't do is go to the other extreme and say, well, since men are the only ones who can teach publicly, then women can't do anything. Why not? Because they're prophesying. That means in some capacity that is in harmony with other scriptures, these four women were revealing a message. Now, I think the obvious conclusion is that it's done in a private way and that they would get together with others privately and reveal the Word of God, but uh, I can't think of any other option. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 9, when it talks about the gifts that the Lord gives, there, these gifts are intended, uh, the gift of prophecy, for teaching others. They're not self-focused, they're others-focused. Phoebe, in Romans chapter 16, is a deacon-like servant. And again, I, I say deacon-like simply because I, I don't believe in the way that uh, the Scriptures talk about the ordained role of deacons, that she meets those qualifications because a deacon is supposed to be the husband of one wife. However, she's deacon-like because the word that's used to describe her in verse 1, when it says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church. You know what word that is in Greek? Diakonos, which is, I think it means deacon. So the idea here is this woman has a role as a helper where she is entrusted with the letter to give to the church. Uh, did she usurp authority over anyone? No. But she did help and share the gospel with this place. We could look at Lois and Eunice as preacher trainers in 2 Timothy 1, verse 3 through 5, 2 Timothy 3, 14, 15. But because Timothy's being raised in a uh, what is traditionally thought a a um, home that has different views spiritually between mom and dad. And so it's up to mom and to grandmother to teach Timothy the truth. And sisters, uh, this is to me one of the clearest examples of the, the value of a godly mother who is raising her children and praying with her children and reading Bible stories to her children and explaining to them the way of God because it is most likely in the general traditional home where a man goes out to work and a mother stays home. And we could go into that about what these roles look like. But in this role where he's gone all day, what is she doing? She's training her children. We find that older women are teachers of good things in Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Uh, verse, the very end of verse 3 says, They're teachers of good things. Verse 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And I've heard some people suggest that, well, this isn't saying they're studying the Bible. They're just talking about how to be good wives and good mothers. And I don't know how one 
can do that without bringing up the Bible. If you bring up a self-help book of any kind that's meant to help a Christian woman to improve herself and to improve her family, it's probably going to have a Bible verse in it. So why not just chuck it and pick up the Bible and it will show you the best way to love one's husband, Ephesians chapter 5, to love their children, Ephesians chapter 6, to be discreet and chaste, 1 Peter chapter 3. I, I could go on, but remember, we're trying to balance here where we have on one side, we want to honor what the scriptures say about when the church comes together, there are distinct roles about who teaches and who doesn't. But then there are also obvious examples of when the church goes home, right? When the assembly breaks up and we're back at home, that women ought to, should, and must be participants in the gospel. There are Corinthian prophetesses, also called teachers. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. What was the point of prophesying? To reveal God's way. And so it's not to do it to yourself, it's to do it to others. It's obvious that these prophetesses had an opportunity to teach. Now that's a long scripture, isn't it? And so what I'm going to do is just highlight the women who were Paul's helpers in the church at Rome. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, which, by the way, have some of the most wonderful names I've ever heard. One means, I think, luxurious, and the other means luxuriating. And I didn't even know that was a word, that one could, in fact, luxuriate. But the idea is that these women were known in some way or form for their luxurious nature, and that luxurious nature was helpful to Paul's ministry. Interesting. Uh, Rufus's mother was a mother to Paul, and as some sources suggest, and I think rightly so, that she was a surrogate mother type. So that when he came in town, she did a lot of the things that a mother would do. So Paul never missed a meal when he came to Rufus's house, or uh, Paul got some critiques, some feedbacks from his sermons when he came to Rufus's house. In whatever way a mother helps her son, Paul was helped. Julia. Uh, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, these women were not just members of the church. These are the ones that were helpful to Paul's ministry. They are participants in the gospel. How much time do I got? Five? Okay. I'm going to make it. I want to share a story. So hopefully, uh, we, we've kind of reached the end of the study. Um, you may have noticed that I didn't answer maybe a lot of the specifics. Well, what about social media? And uh, what would it look like for me to encourage someone to privately study the Bible? How many people does it take for a, a private study to become public? And what can be said about this study in order for it to stay private? We can talk about that, but I feel like what's more important is establishing this foundation that there's an urgency that it needs to be done. But I do want to share one story. Uh, when we lived in Cambodia for three years, it was a very lonely, 
time. I know many in this audience have lived abroad, and you can relate to the loneliness that comes when you don't have friends, uh, other than maybe the local brethren, but there's still that cultural divide. And so Bradley and Brandy Ballard lived with us for a couple of years, and then they moved back to the States, and the Edwards remained in Cambodia on our own. And uh, we had visitors come from time to time, and dare they watch this presentation later? My parents came to visit, and I loved them coming. <laughs> so uh, we had several visitors, but we had maybe six months left there in the country, and uh, we were really lonely. And wouldn't you know, we had a couple of young sisters reach out on Facebook Messenger and say, hey, can we come visit? And Jonathan, who was at a place in his life where he was not very vulnerable, was just kind of like, you yeah, know, okay, it's no big deal. You can come if you want to. And so they came to visit. Full disclosure, they never preached. And when the church got together, uh, when we went out to visit others, they didn't lead those Bible studies. And yet, their encouragement to our work emotionally saved me. I'm, I'm willing to admit that now. I wasn't then. But those three weeks that we had with them, we taught Bible. Uh, we processed what it was like to live in this place. And that encouragement was essential to what we were doing there. And so if you're ever wondering, well, what can I do? How can I help? I just want you to know, sisters, there are things you can do to help the work, even if that means that you're not the one who is up here preaching. Okay, I won't repeat these, but uh, I'd at least like to put them up on the board. These were the assumptions that I had as we began the study, and hopefully the scriptures that we've looked at uh, have answered these assumptions. And so I'd like to conclude with this thought. We shouldn't be asking can. We should be asking how can. And what a difference that question is. Because if we're coming at it from how can, then we're going to put a lot of women to work for the Lord instead of burying those talents. Thank you. I'm done. Here are some potential questions that I have. And... Uh, I may not want to answer them, but I feel like this might have been where people wanted me to go with it, so I put it in the Q&A.